for many young people, and this, of course, is not exclusive to refugees, uncertainty is really the only context in which they have ever experienced schooling. And I think that experiences of refugee education have a lot to teach us that way in terms of what we know about um, continued life in uncertainty, what we know about some of these navigational capacities, and also provide an opportunity to really kind of decenter where this knowledge comes from, that clearly we do not have all the answers. You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Learning Futures. The Learning Futures podcast. You are listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Welcome to the Learning Futures podcast. I'm your host, Ron Baghetto. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and into the future moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Professor Sarah Dryden-Peterson. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks so much, Ron. It's really great to be talking today. Um, So my name is Sarah Dryden-Peterson, and I am both a teacher and a researcher who focuses on how education can foster equitable and participatory and peaceful communities and futures. I work as an associate professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and over the past few years, I have co-founded and I'm now director of uh, an initiative that we call Refugee Reach, which brings together researchers, educators, and policymakers around ways to create quality education and welcoming communities in settings of migration. Yeah, that's so interesting, the work that you're doing. And I think what's really important before we kind of dive more into that is having our listeners hear a little bit about your story. I think it's so important for young people to learn about our guests and how you arrived at the current work you're doing. So can you share a little bit about your own journey? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So I grew up in Canada and one of the key kind of learnings and puzzles really for me in secondary school was thinking about how I was learning history. Um, And this preoccupation really started to develop as I got to know people from other parts of Canada. And as we talked about the kind of history that we learned in schools, realizing that in fact, we were learning very different history. Um, And as a high school student, this had not occurred to me. I assumed that the history of Canada that I learned was the history of Canada, full stop. Um, And so I became very interested in different perspectives on memory making, different perspectives on nation, the kinds of stories that were and were not included in schools as we tried to make meaning of who we were as adolescents and of the kind of ways in which we belonged to a community. Um, So I followed these interests uh, through college and then after I graduated from university, Um, I spent a year doing research in schools in Cape Town, South Africa. This was about four years after the end of apartheid. And I was really interested similarly in trying to understand how young people in South Africa, four years into a transition to democracy, were coming to understand their national history, particularly as a way of thinking about reconciliation and building a kind of future for a, a nation that hopefully would be more united and equitable than the one that many of them had been born into. This 
interest really stretched into the work that I did as a middle school teacher. I taught seventh and eighth grade humanities here in the Boston area, trying to integrate literature and social studies, and worked with a lot of young people who had migrated to Boston area from other places, some of whom were refugees. And as I got to know my students, tried to listen and learn from them and their families, I realized that I had such missing pieces of what I understood about their educational experiences before we had ended up in the same classrooms together. And so I became really interested in the kinds of education that was available to refugee students globally um, in countries of first asylum, which are the the first countries that refugees flee to um, in a situation of conflict or natural disaster. And and so have ended up spending a lot of time over the last two decades um, working in refugee settings and trying to better understand the experiences of refugees in schools. What is the scope of the kind of situation with respect to refugee young people? I I think a lot of times living here in the States, many of us aren't aware of the scope of of what's happening globally or even even nationally in our own in our own nation. So what is the scope of the problem and and you know why is it so important that that everyone recognizes that this is not something that we can just kind of wave away. What is the nature of this and and why is it so critically important that folks understand the nature of kind of the refugee experience and the kind of refugee education that's happening around it? Well, there there are more than 26 million refugees globally right now. So that's about the size of Texas, for example, population of Texas. Um, And I think a couple of important dimensions of this are that um, displacements as a result of conflict and as a result of natural disaster are increasing. Um, And so we see many more mass displacements now than we did in the late 1990s. And we can predict that there will be many more given the kind of climate disasters that we anticipate on the horizon. And so really thinking about education of young people who are living outside of their countries of origin. Um, And some of these big thorny questions about then who who is responsible for funding education of refugees, for example, Um, or what kind of curriculums might refugees follow to allow them to nimbly navigate between different kinds of futures that they can't predict where they might even have the right to live in the future. And I think another important dimension of it that we rarely think about in the United States is that For most refugees globally, there is no pathway to citizenship or permanent residence. Someone who arrives in the United States with refugee status, who has been resettled from another country, is on a pathway to citizenship. But for other refugees globally, there's no sense of what that long-term situation might be. And so to be constantly living and going to school in a situation where you don't know if tomorrow you may no longer have the right to live in a particular country or you may no longer have the right to go to school, creates situations in which it's hard to invest in developing these intertwined relationships of belonging and where it's hard to know what even these pragmatic decisions about what language might be, might open some kind of opportunities for me in the future. It's hard to predict that. 
Um, and then I guess the last thing that I'll mention on this too is that the length of displacement has radically lengthened over the past several decades. Um, so that while most refugees do leave their homes thinking that they might return home within a few weeks or a few months, most are displaced between 10 and 25 years. So for a child, that's really a kind of one shot at education. And yet that protractedness is not known from the outset. So being able to really jump in and invest can be really challenging. Thankfully, for most refugees in the U.S., this kind of sense of permanence and developing a sense of belonging over the long term is a possibility because on a pathway to citizenship, there's little sense that that will be revoked, that there is the possibility of building for the long term. I think this is such a fascinating pathway you've had it and the kind of the genesis of your ideas and questions came out of history in school and how this is kind of provides an alternative way of thinking about history. Oftentimes things are taught in school in such fixed and predetermined pre-known ways. And what you're describing is this plurality of perspectives, these incomplete narratives, the components of personal identities and educations and even nation histories. And so I think that's such an interesting, as a creativity researcher, you know, plurality of perspectives is something we see as a key marker of creative educational experiences. And so I'd, I'd love to hear more about the kinds of projects this has led to now that you're currently working on um, and how that maybe is disrupting in, in a generative and positive and creative way, how we think about history as a subject area and, and what that means for education in schools. Thanks, Ron. This is a really interesting question. And I think that one of the real puzzles that we have been focused on as we work on refugee education is the kind of real misalignment, I think, between these elements of a really productive kind of learning of history, um, learning about identity that happens in schools, and the kinds of experiences that we observe and talk with refugee young people about having in countries of first asylum. So maybe just as a little bit of background on this too, um, although we often think about refugees in the U.S. and think about small numbers of refugees who may be in many different schools in the United States, the work that we do is in neighboring countries of asylum. So 84% of refugees live in the country that's directly adjacent to their country of origin. And Often this means that there are large numbers of refugees when there are refugees in a country of first asylum, because as a conflict happens, many, many people are displaced. So some of the work that we've been doing in Lebanon, where one quarter of the population of Lebanon is now Syrian refugees, and this compares to one-tenth of one percent in the U.S., and here's where often the misalignment happens in terms of the kinds of histories that refugee young people would love to learn about and would support their identity development and the kinds of history learning that they have access to. So until about 10 years ago, um, refugees were typically educated in separate schools from nationals. So at a time when usually refugees lived in refugee camps, very isolated from national populations, um, and so learning separately from any national students. Over the past 10 years, there's been a real global push to include refugees in national education systems. And this has the potential for a lot of benefits of access to a curriculum that is already in place, access to trained teachers, um, opportunities for certification. But it also means that refugee young people are 
submerged in many ways in national curriculum, which includes national histories and national languages that are unfamiliar to them. And they come to question the value or the worth of this submersion in uh, a different nation than they identify with. And I think this is where it's really hard to navigate the kinds of tensions between a history that one might imagine, these kind of markers of um, creativity and possibility for different perspectives, when in many nation states, particularly those that have been affected by conflict, curriculum becomes a place where a standardized version of a history can be very valuable in terms of a conflict avoidance kind of tool. So in the work we've been doing in Lebanon, for example, or in Kenya, or in Uganda, we hear from refugee young people about the ways in which they don't see themselves represented in history curriculum in particular, um, because they are viewed as non-citizens who are somewhat temporary within that space. But on the other hand, we know that refugees once displaced live in exile for between 10 and 25 years. So while often seen as a short-term solution from a policy perspective, the experience of this displacement is often quite protracted. But I'd love to talk about some of these places where we do see these glimmers of possibility um, and openness to multiple perspectives and to this kind of um, real ways in which young people are able to connect their learning of history to the future. And I think often what we see is these experiences happening in community spaces. Um, and so the kind of standardized curriculum that young people have access to in school, perhaps not representing them, but the kind of initiatives that are upstarted by communities really reflecting this uncertainty about the future. Will it be here? Will it be there? Will it be somewhere else entirely? As well as these elements of identity. And I think that this is not unique to refugee situations. When disruptions occur, as we've obviously seen during the pandemic as well, the first to create new educational kinds of innov innovations are communities. Sometimes that's families, sometimes that's slightly larger communities, but really thinking about what do we really want our children and young people to learn and how do we create the ability to do that? And that's what we see in refugee settings, too, where this kind of learning of a history that's relevant to particular young people and their histories of migration and learning about identity, not just in a static sense, but in this really malleable sense of being part of a new um, situation in a new school, in a new community, in a new country that they're living in. Yeah, I, I just love what you're describing, how it just opens up so many vistas of possibility including this idea that, you know, the only place that learning happens is in this place called school and how communities become a site of powerful learning and identity development and indeed future possibilities and how it unfreezes a narrow history or a standard history and, and makes that plural as well, that there are histories involved. And can you unpack that a little bit more for our listeners? What does it look like to have those community-based experiences, both for young people who are refugees and other students who are learning beyond the walls of the classroom? And how does this connect to what you've described as this building towards a peaceful future? Well, I, I think this idea, and I know that that you embrace this idea with the podcast, this idea of multiple kinds of futures, plural, um, is so important in thinking about these experiences of education and not just schooling for refugee young people. 
we're often thinking about the kind of uncertainty that refugees are experiencing because they don't know how long their displacement will last. They don't know how long the the right to asylum will remain in the place that they are. They don't know whether the future will be in the place where they are right now in their country of origin um, somewhere else. And so we're often planning for these kind of multiple futures. And the different kinds of learning that refugee young people are intentionally seeking out often are perceived as pathways to these different kinds of futures and really kind of seeing a type of navigation among these futures. So, for example, the work we've been doing with Syrian young people in Lebanon, despite this kind of alienation from curriculum at national public schools, seeing a very clear purpose for pursuing education within the national education system, passing national exams, achieving certification, learning new languages that can be pathways to some futures that they're yet unable to define. But on the other hand, at the same time, wanting to plan for futures that young people know and experience require different kinds of learning, different kinds of skills, different kinds of languages. And so seeking out other opportunities to learn, for example, the history of a country of origin or to maintain languages to be able to communicate with family members um, who have remained in a country of origin or leave open this possibility that one day a return might be possible and then employment would be possible in that type of space. So we really see young people navigating in many ways between these very instrumental kinds of purposes for schooling and these aspirations of what they hope their education can do. But within these structural constraints of, for example, a a refugee young person who graduates from secondary school in Kenya does not have the right to work or the right to freedom of movement in various parts of the country outside the camp. So the, the use of that education becomes questionable. And I think it what we've seen across, we did a, a study in 14 different countries really looking at the purposes of refugee education and this real sense among refugee young people who feel like they are being promised the possibilities of education by persisting in school, by attaining certification, and then graduate into what become unrequited promises because they are not able to access opportunities with that kind of learning. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is this idea of moving away from this binary that there's one pathway to this promise of education. And I I think, you know, in my work, uh, I've talked about it in the context of creativity that often the educational promissory note is, is somewhat bankrupt, not only because it defers that someday this may be useful, but even someday it may turn out to have little use or, or put unnecessary constraints. And so this kind of both and approach that you're describing opens up this whole vista of possibilities, horizons of possibilities. Can you describe more? Have you done more longitudinal work looking at what are some of the trajectories, the learning and life trajectories of folks that are are experiencing multiple pathways and and, and navigating the profound uncertainties that they're experiencing as young people? So one of the 
areas in refugee education that is critical are these longitudinal studies that you describe. Um, this can be particularly challenging to do in refugee settings um, because of the uncertainty and um, an ongoing movement um, of young people, but not impossible. Um, we have done initial work trying to continue to follow young people transnationally and keep in contact over um, many years, particularly as they make migration decisions that are often connected to education. One of the real elements that we hear from young people as we follow them, even over one year of schooling, are the ways in which the ways in which young people describe how their educators support them to make these kinds of navigational decisions between um, kind of what exists and what could be. And I think that because many refugee young people are living in situations where the migration policies that are in place are very rigid, in some cases, literal walls, and in other cases, laws and policies that are really designed to put boundaries around futures in many ways, um, young people are looking to teachers often to help them figure out both what those boundaries are and how they can create the kinds of learning and tools that can allow them to work around those boundaries and to really change the shape of those boundaries. So we often see educators in these kinds of situations really trying to not conceptualize education as only this instrumental tool to get by, to pass exams, not thinking about it as this promissory note, but instead thinking about education as equipping oneself with these kinds of tools to build different kinds of futures. And as we see young people and teachers interact in these kinds of relationships, really focused on these, these relationships, trying to understand where each other are, the kinds of experiences one may be having in exile, and the ways in which understanding young people's experience in that moment can support teachers, even those teaching within these rigid curriculums that we were talking about earlier, to help students make connections to their own experiences, to help them analyze it in new and different ways in order to then apply those kinds of skills over the long run. So I think these what you're describing in terms of longitudinal studies are so critical to really thinking about the kinds of experiences that refugees have had while in displacement. And then 5, 10, 15 years later, how they reflect on those experiences in terms of thinking about what they did learn, what they didn't learn, what happened in school, what didn't happen in school, and the kinds of um, supports that they would really be looking for to help them not kind of grow into a future um, that may feel very limited by these migration policies, but instead to create different kinds of possibilities for themselves, despite the structures. Yeah, thank you. And, and so it's such an important message, I think, for you know our, our listeners to understand some of the realities that refugee young people are facing. But critically, as you mentioned, that educators play such a critical role in supporting um, the possibilities for refugee young people. And so as we start thinking about the future um, of education for refugee young people and the teachers who are supporting them, what we like to do on this podcast is, you know, explore the plurality of, of futures, including the good, the bad, and the beautiful. And so we'd invite you to share with us your thoughts on what are some of these possible futures that you see the bad, the good, and the beautiful? What a beautiful question um, in and of itself. 
I, I think we we think a lot about these kind of bad futures as we talk to refugee young people who do feel so constricted by the kinds of migration policies that exist in the United States, that exist um, in the European Union, that exist within countries of first asylum that restrict freedom of movement and that limit the length of time that someone might be in exile because they so constrain the opportunity to really think about to think and plan for and imagine a kind of long term and what might be possible. It feels suffocating in so many ways. And I think what opens up as really productive kind of possibilities are often in these relationships with educators who can support young people to really think about what what those boundaries mean, what the bound the, the boundaries that do exist to understand those boundaries also in terms of the histories of conflict. Um, and kind of how how they got to the place where they were, not just geographically, um, but in terms of relationships among refugees and host communities, and then really think about what that means in terms of having that understanding of the current situation for building a more beautiful future. And I, I think a lot about the kinds of the, the, the ways in which we think about migration as needing to to keep people out. And I think that a beautiful future involves opening up a possibility of thinking about living entwined lives in many ways. And I, I think about a couple of different elements of this. Um, Warshan Shire is a British poet who um, was born to Somali parents in Kenya. And she, in one of her poems, um, writes that no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And this line has been so important to me in many conversations and in my own thinking in terms of redefining how we think about migration from a position where I'm sitting right now in the United States, not as about here, but also as about somewhere else. And what it means for someone to make a decision to leave their home and the implications of that um, shift in thinking um, for creating more entwined kind of futures. I also think about Mary Catherine Bateson, who writes about the, the number of teachers in the United States um, who are white women, who live very close to the places that they were born, um, and yet talks about how for many of these teachers that it's not that they have not moved, but the world has changed for them. And I think, again, this kind of flipping of the question and the puzzle in some ways to think about how communities work together, not just to think about migration as a process of moving from one place to another, but of creating new communities together and figuring out those new futures together is so important. And so these are some of the kinds of questions that I ask myself as we think about this more beautiful future. Are there ways to think about that entwinement of our kids as they sit in schools together, of our communities that embrace this sense of understanding how and why movement happens and the kind of responsibility that we have to create these communities, these new communities for every single one of us together. Yeah, thank you. I, I think that's such a, a powerful and hopeful and beautiful future that you're kind of painting um, for us. And the idea that you know, these intertwined communities, that it really is beneficial to everyone in that space, that we we learn different ways of, of experiencing and seeing the world together. 
and the idea, even, you know, that, uh, that sobering kind of poetic image of the mouth of the shark, that it's something motivates that kind of movement um, that people don't even consider who haven't kind of experienced that or who haven't encountered that. And so all the possibilities that um, in here in young people's experiences and refugee young people who have experienced tremendous constraints, tremendous uncertainty to the point of, you know, survival imperatives. And in the field of creativity studies, we recognize that uncertainty and constraints are often the spaces where a lot of creative learning happens um, for everyone involved, not just young people, but anyone who is working collaboratively together in communities that the, the benefits accrue to everyone, um, the communities themselves, educators and students. And so I'd be interested as we kind of wind down a little bit on this conversation to hear more about what, you're, what work you're doing, this idea that you talk about this kind of peaceful future. What do you see as leading towards this peaceful, beautiful future from where things currently are, particularly with refugee young people and the education that could occur in these kind of intertwined communities? One of the experiences I feel like I've had over the past year as experiences of deep uncertainty and disruption have occurred in the United States connected to the COVID-19 pandemic has been a real reflection on just exactly what you're saying, this idea that uncertainty, while often framed as a very kind of negative and stifling situation for so many, and certainly in the pandemic framed in those ways, often with schools, is this kind of space for um, generativity and for creating, I think, more peaceful and hopefully beautiful futures in these ways. One of the findings that we have from our research is this idea that for many young people, and this, of course, is not exclusive to refugees, uncertainty is really the only context in which they have ever experienced schooling. Um, And so the kinds of ways that they have developed to navigate um, these unknowable futures are quite remarkable. And I have some hope that as we, hopefully as a global community and not as isolated nation states, try to emerge from this pandemic, we begin to think more deeply about the ways in which each of our lives are intertwined one with the other, whether or not we know each other personally or not. And I think that experiences of refugee education have a lot to teach us that way in terms of what we know about um, continued life and uncertainty, what we know about some of these navigational capacities, and also provide an opportunity to really kind of decenter where this knowledge comes from, that clearly we do not have all the answers for how to address school closures and how to address interrupted and disrupted learning here, at least in the community where I sit in Boston. There are a lot of communities globally who have experienced this kind of uncertainty and these kind of disruptions over decades. And I feel like this provides also an opportunity to to really come into conversations where we, each and every one of us, come to the table with these perhaps different experiences, but some shared sense of where we hope to get to as um, a more global community of, of care and responsibility, even while living in our very local context. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your journey. I think it's so fascinating. And it's, I think it's really important for listeners, particularly young people and adults, and I've talked about this with other guests, for folks to understand that, you know, you, even your own pathway was filled with so many uncertainties and came out of this kind of 
dissatisfaction with the certitudes and, and finalized, you know, nature of the way education packages history, for example, in your case, but almost any kind of learning experience. And, and really there is, there are so many unknowns and how this has brought you to this, this really important area of work. Um, and so thank you for increasing my own learning and awareness. I'm sure our listeners are interested in learning more about the projects you're working on. And can you share where they can find more information about the work you're doing? And if there's anything else that um, we haven't covered that you'd like to share, we'd love to hear that as well. Sure. Thanks, Ron. One of the projects that I've been most excited about um, is this initiative called Refugee Reach that we've started that really is designed with the purpose of creating spaces for some of these conversations that we've been talking about on dilemmas, on big collective puzzles that really don't have clear-cut answers. Um, And so we've been really trying to shift um, who is engaged in these conversations, bringing together educators, policymakers, researchers, bringing people together across geographies to address questions of how to how to plan education for multiple futures, how to think about discrete questions of language of instruction with this idea of multiple futures in mind, how to create welcoming communities in settings of displacement. And I've been really excited about the way that these conversations can develop over global spaces and the ways in which we can come together feeling comfortable that we don't know in order to really sort through some of these dilemmas together. So I'd be delighted to hear from from listeners um, their own experiences and any kind of engagement they might like to have with our refugee reach. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to put the contact information you share with us as well as information about the projects in our show notes. Thank you again, Sarah, so much for taking time to share this important work with us. Thanks so much, Ron. It's been great. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. The Learning Futures Podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.